0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health perspective.
1: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Elmore. My guest today is Dr. Jamie Arnuff. Jamie is a licensed clinical psychologist with extensive experience with both assessment and therapy, focusing on children and adolescents with internalizing disorders in multiple hospital based settings, residential treatment centers, and community based outpatient mental health clinics. In addition to co-founding a private therapy practice specializing in high-risk youth, for the past few years, she's developed and delivered school presentations for children, parents, and school staff, as well as trainings for clinicians and other providers on youth mental health and suicide prevention. We're excited to have Jamie back with us. Previously, she joined us for a conversation about pain reprocessing therapy, which is another one of her certifications. If you're interested in hearing our conversation around that, you can listen to that episode in our archive at triadhq.com/bht. But today we're going to be focusing on Jamie's experience working with children and adolescents and specifically working with high-risk teens. So welcome back Jamie, we're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Yes. So let's get into this second topic. You definitely have many areas of focus. You're a busy person. So (laughs) let's go into dealing with high-risk teens. And I am personally really excited for this conversation because I'm not sure if you know, but when I was in private practice, I specialized in children and teens as well. Some high risk, but probably not as many high risk as you've worked with. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So as we start, do you want to define for our audience what a high-risk teen is?
2: Sure. So for me, when I'm talking with family or the adolescents themselves or just meeting new clients for the first time, I would identify someone as high risk if they're expressing a history of or active experiences with suicidal ideation or urges to engage in self-injurious behaviors. So that to me would... Indicate that they're a little bit more high risk, probably lead to a discussion pretty early on about the frequency with which I want to be seeing them. I would request that we meet at least once every week. If my clients are not high risk, then I'm open to meeting once every other week if that's something that fits better in their schedule for whatever reason. But that's typically what I would think of as a high risk client.
1: Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I was thinking of as well. And what would you say are some of the main factors that contribute to a teen? Ending up with this categorization of high
2: risk—that's mm, really tough. It could be anything, really. Right. And I wouldn't. I would want clients or anyone listening to feel like it doesn't have to be one specific thing that leads to or causes those thoughts to exist for them or those urges to exist for them. And at the same time, just based on my experience, history of trauma generational trauma, physical, sexual abuse, being in a home where there's domestic violence or neglect. Those are some predisposing factors that might lead to an increased incident of these you know, particular thoughts.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I like how you made that distinction though. It doesn't necessarily have to be any of those things because I think, you know, from the student perspective and grad school, we learn many of those things can lead to a teen being high risk, but out there in the real world, we know you don't have to have any of those things and you can still end up struggling with suicide or drug use or any of those items. I think being a teenager is just really hard. (laughs) So hard. (laughs) There's so much changing in our, in the brain and hormones. And I know everybody throws that out there as a reason, as a catch-all for everything, but Mm -hmm. it is very real. It's a real hard thing to navigate. And then Mm -hmm. I think, especially in today's world, there's so much more to navigate that most teens in the past haven't had to deal with, like social media and COVID and economic issues and all of that. So I, I like how you made space for it could really be anything that leads someone to be high risk.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And validating that, oh, just being a teenager. Is a reason for struggle. Yeah. It's stressful. That's <laughs> hard. You said to be a teen. So sometimes caregivers will come in and be like, oh, I can't decide if this is a clinical issue or they're just being a teenager. And the teenager will be rolling their eyes. And I'll be like, yeah, it's probably both. Like it could be both. And even if it's just them being a teenager, that doesn't, you know, then remove them from the possibility of benefiting from therapy, from right. the family benefiting from therapy. You know, teens have it tough. So they deserve just as much support, whether it's something clinical or they just want someone to talk to about the studying that they have to do, the sports that they have to manage, the Cafeteria food they have yeah. to navigate. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot every every day, and they're they're expected to, you know, wake up early and keep it going until late at night,
1: yeah. And there's so many physical and mental changes going on in their body, too. So it's a tough taxing time. It's also, I think, a beautiful time, too. I, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but I know it's also a time of big dreams and aspirations. And teens mm-hmm. have this beautiful way of seeing, things that as adults we have forgotten about, or we just don't see things from that perspective anymore. The um, no fear attitude can cause a lot of strife in the home, but it also leads to a lot of really amazing achievements and empowering ideas. So it's it's also a fun time, I think.
2: Yes, absolutely. I was just on a much smaller basis talking to a client who skis for fun about the importance of learning something like that and embracing it as a child because there's just no fear you can get on those skis out in the snow you can be cold it doesn't matter you can get to the top of this tall hill and know that gravity is going to pull you forward and pull you forward fast and just go for it when like people who learn how to ski as adults know too much there's too much risk and so the idea of like (laughs) bundling up Knowing that you're going to be cold and it might be uncomfortable and will that be worth it getting to the top of the hill and being like, I know what's going to happen and I'd rather not. I'm just going to like stick to my safety and just like unclip and and walk to the lodge. You miss out on opportunities that way. And so I think to your point, it is pretty awesome. Their perspective on life. Sometimes I think that they can teach us just as much as we can teach them, which is why I enjoy spending most of my time with them at work.
1: Definitely. Definitely. You jogged my memory with stories.
2: I, my family actually
1: went skiing a few times and there was a time when I was a teenager, <laughs> I fully did go down the hill. I knew how to ski, but I was going way too fast without realizing it. Cause I was very much a daredevil at that time mm-hmm. and literally was headed towards the ski lift pole. Like one of those poles where the, the ski ski lift chairs go by. Oh Couldn't stop myself. So my only solution was to face plant right in front of the pole. <laughs> I couldn't get up because my skis were stuck in the ground. And everybody was like concerned for me, and somebody had to come pluck me out of the snow. But I just didn't care because I was a teenager. And of course, you would never catch me doing that now. So yeah. that was a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fun time, but a lot is happening and a lot to navigate. So, speaking of behavior in teens and things that we normally wouldn't do as adults, what are some of the behaviors that you typically notice if we're talking about a teen that's high risk? Besides like reckless yeah. skiing.
2: Sure. <laughs> it's skiing just reckless. No, I know, I'm right? Exclusive. <laughs> I think of it in different terms, like both external and turn internal. So you hear about the external running away, being defiant toward authority, non-compliant in school, maybe engaging in illegal activities, not going to school at all. But then other things like changing your dynamics with how you relate to your peers, with your parents, with your teachers, Mm. your coaches, quieter things, just like withdrawing and isolating, having trouble sleeping, eating. Those are all things that you might notice in a person who might be more at risk for Mm. needing mental health services.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that internal expression too, because typically when we think of behaviors, we think of something big and out there Mm -hmm. and obvious. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, the withdrawing and the more quiet signs of d- distress are equally as serious.
2: Yeah, I would say that I'm less often encountering the like loud in your face acting out clients as so someone who works primarily within anxiety and depression. It's mostly the quiet clients who maybe said something eventually or someone noticed a little something and they thought it might be helpful to talk to someone like me. And then slowly it develops that they're really having a hard time Mm -hmm. and either just don't have the language to talk about it, don't feel like they have permission to talk about it, are nervous about what might happen if they do, you know, because conversations like the ones that you have in therapy or ones that I refer to as the tough stuff are not always conversations that we see modeled and more modeled appropriately around us.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm Good point. And I feel like I'm thinking irritability is – in between those two categories because it's Mm. a little bit of like lashing out but it's not too obvious Mm -hmm. and i feel like in private practice for me that was always one that was hard for me to distinguish is this just teenager attitude is this depression manifesting as irritability because that is the most common way depression shows up
2: Mm -hmm. well it's one
1: of the most common factors in depression showing up as irritability instead of what we think of with adult depression of laying in bed all day for sure. So, Do you have thoughts on that of how do you really distinguish when irritability becomes more of a sign that a teen is unwell? Because mm-hmm. there's a
2: lot for them to be irritable about, which is very valid. Right. I guess I look more into that to help distinguish because the point is that they're irritable. And yeah. if that irritability is getting in their way, then what's contributing to the irritability, what circumstances, times of day, people, places. Do they eat for anything for breakfast? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Just like learning a little bit about the context, where they feel irritable, and if that gives me some insight into what's kind of causing that experience for them, and also how it's getting in the way for them, what it's getting in the way of just helps me kind of conceptualize it for that person rather than within that specific diagnosis or where mm-hmm. it's coming from because ultimately I guess in that moment does it matter for them it is presenting as irritability and it's getting in their way
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: yeah that's a good way to think of
1: it I think that may be helpful for some parents too, is to think of the, is this common? Is this constant? Is it mm-hmm. circumstantial or is this really becoming part of their character? <laughs> or you feel like it's part of their character because that—that that is a warning sign, I think. For sure. Okay. So I think we're, we've always heard early intervention is better, especially when it comes to kids and teens. Can you speak to why early intervention is particularly
2: important for high-risk or at-risk teens? I mean- actions do have consequences. So Mm -hmm. it's important to intervene if their actions are being impacted by their mental health, because especially as they get older, those consequences become more serious. And you mentioned earlier, you know, development, child development plays a part in that. I talk a lot about brain development with my clients and their families, because It's well known that the brain is continuing to develop well into our mid-20s at this point. Our brains are developing from back to front. So this frontal lobe that a lot of people talk about in schools in terms of like executive functioning and organization, attention, things like that also impact our reasoning. So our ability to think about positive solutions for things, our ability to assess consequences and respond to things versus react to things. And so that is the last thing to develop in a child's brain. And so we need to be mindful of that as we're setting expectations for clients that are younger, but also intervening efficiently so that, you know, we can support them as they do continue to develop and have access to these resources cognitively.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's really important to remember. I remember learning about that in school and thinking it's so silly how we have um, these different requirements for age, for different freedoms. Like Mm. you can drink alcohol before you can rent a car and you can get a tattoo and you know, smoke and all of this stuff before your brain's really formed. And it doesn't, you can take out so many student loans before your frontal lobe is formed. And, you know, there's, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I think <laughs> it's, it's helpful to keep that in mind for our parents listening or your clinicians too, who work with families is even though there's a lot of societal freedoms that come with being essentially a teenager or an older teenager, there's still a lot of brain development happening and it doesn't have to all be there before they get some freedom, but. I think it's helpful to keep it in perspective as they're still growing a lot mentally. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what do parents do? What do you recommend parents start to do if they feel like their teen needs some intervention?
2: Typically, if I'm speaking to a parent about intervention, it's because they're curious about What therapy looks like, what the process of initiating services is like, what it might be like for their child. And so I will give them kind of a spiel of what I provide in terms of services, what my space looks like. We have a website that goes into detail about who we are, what we do, where we practice. And I encourage them to show the. Child, the website, so they can kind of get a feel for who we are. I always encourage them to it, it kind of invite the client into the process of exploring what providers might be a good fit for them, seeing what they like and don't like. That way they're prepared for the first session. I've had clients you know, have the conversation with their parents on the way to session of like, oh, by the way, we're going to therapy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. or we're going to see Dr. Jamie. And then, Younger kids are like, no, I hate doctors. those are scary. And I'm like, no, no, I don't do that. I'm a mm-hmm. feelings doctor. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I don't give shots or anything like that. I still have lollipops if you want one. But, you know, inviting them into the process so they feel like they are being given a little bit of control in the matter because it's about them and for them. So kind of sharing all of that with them. We have an Instagram that clients can check out. They can look at all of our posts. We're, again, trying to give a feel for who we are, how we talk, how we interact, what we stand for, tips and tricks for anybody that's interested. And they all have access to that before they even meet with us. So explaining that, you know, that's what they'll do even before they have a first session and then sort of break down what a first appointment might look like with someone like me and how I'm available to refer them elsewhere if they meet me and feel like they're looking for something different that's acceptable too.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I love how you're encouraging the parents to include their teen in the process by just giving them a sense of this is what the office will look like at least, or here's what Dr. Jamie looks like. And Mm -hmm. yeah, when I was in private practice, similar, I had actually a page on my website just for teens that explained like this is what's going to happen. And here's some examples of what you could tell your friends. If you have to get pulled out of school early, you don't to have to, Mm-mm. I'm going to therapy. You know, you could just be like, oh, I have an appointment. Or I think some of those things are really important to teens. And it can be really daunting when they're already not feeling 100% to try and have to explain to their social group what they're doing or why they're leaving. Absolutely. You know, so-and-so class. And yeah, so I think that's a really helpful for parents to give it more information maybe than they think
2: that they have to. Yeah. It makes me think of the conversation I have with teens when we meet for the first time and they've decided that they want to continue on with me as their therapist living in Beacon, New York. It's kind of small town vibes. Everybody's out and about walking from place to place. Very likely that we're going to bump into one another Uh and that they're going to be with people who don't know who I am. And so having the conversation... You know, like a lighthearted conversation of, listen, if we see each other on the street, I'm going to look to you and take your lead. If we make eye contact and you look away from me and walk faster and faster past me, I'm going to pretend that we do not know each other. You do not have to worry about me. If you'd like to say hi, I would love that. Like wave your hands, say Jamie, I will cross the street and we can have a chat. But I don't want you to ever feel like you have to introduce me to anyone that you're with or explain who that person is just because we bump into each other because it is something that happens a lot. But I, I understand that No, everybody wants to be like, oh yeah, that's that's Jamie. She's me. <laughs> Although a lot of my teens talk about what their therapist share with them during lunch. <laughs> it's kind that of like the topic too. of conversation. <laughs> yeah, that was my
1: experience too. Is mo- I feel like most are are fine with it, but it is wonderful to make give those parameters for them and let them sure. feel. Because yeah, I think I think most kids from the day they're born, they want control, right? And this is true with teenagers as well. They're gradually getting more and more in control and, of their environment or even their mind as their mind develops, but mm-hmm. so giving them those parameters of like, you can take the lead here. I'll follow your lead. I think that they really appreciate that. Yeah. The one other thought I had about your the way you set things up for parents that's so helpful is in my experience, I felt like a lot of parents were really concerned about broaching the therapy topic with their teens for the first time. Mm-hmm. Maybe not all, but I just wanted to express that usually in my experience, the teens found it as a loving act for their parents to say, hey, you know, I know things aren't going well. You know, things aren't going well. That's no big secret here. And we have invested time in finding somebody who's going to help make things better for all of us. Mm -hmm. And although of course they may, you know, pretend they don't want to go or really not want to go in the beginning or throw a fit or whatever, (laughs) ultimately they usually all felt like loved, you know, that, that somebody noticed they were not doing well and did something about it. So I, I love that you're empowering the parents with ways to communicate what therapy is and not just surprise them because that's harder on the therapist too. I've had those drive-bys where the kids think they're going somewhere else and then all of a sudden they're at therapy and it's just hard to start out a relationship that way.
2: Yes. And I think giving the parent the spiel and then informing them that you're going to do the same thing with the teen when they come in that very first session, that this is just an opportunity to meet one another We're having this chat beforehand to get a seal for one another, then they can make the appointment if they'd like. If the teen then goes to my Instagram and is like, no, thank you, they can cancel that appointment and I'm not going to be offended. But once we've had an opportunity to meet for that initial session, I'm always going to ask the teen how they felt today went. Do they think I might be a person they'll consider talking to at some point in the future? And would they like to make another appointment? And usually it works. It works out pretty well. And they again, they feel empowered. They know that if in between sessions, they change their mind, they can email me. They know that if Five months down the line, five years down the line, they're looking for something different. I'm just here to support. And if that means supporting them to find another person, I'm more than happy to do that. And they're not going to hurt my feelings. So I think that kind of setting that up with the parent, that that parent can then communicate that to the teen. So when they come in, they know, I just have to deal with this person for 50 minutes. And if I don't like her, then I never have to see her again. Yeah. Try and make the first session as bearable as possible. So I'm sure you're wonderful. I'm (laughs) sure you're, you're very easygoing and wonderful. (laughs) No,
1: that setup is great too, because it also prevents possible power struggles later on. I've had some rare, but, you know, some teens, it as a way of just sort of fighting against some of the things that their parents want them to do or improve on, start to use therapy as like a bargaining tool. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to go to therapy then, you know. And so your idea of saying, look, I'll help you find someone else doesn't mean anything to me. Sometimes takes you out of the equation if there is a struggle later down the line, too. Folks,
0: pardon the interruption, but we'll continue this discussion on our next show. This is your producer, Peter Fanger, and I want to thank our guest, Jamie Arneth for coming on to our show today. For more information about Jamie and her private practice, BFF Therapy, please visit bfftherapy.com. You can also connect with BFF Therapy on Instagram and Twitter, both at BFF Therapy. And lastly, I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. We look forward to seeing you next time on Behavioral Health Today.